Hi. Hello. How, How are, are you? you? <laughs> Again! <laughs> you go first this time. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, it's been a day. It's just like a weird day. Not even a bad day, just a weird day. Mm. Uh, so I am drinking wine. Great. Good old Snoop Dogg Cali Red. Excellent. Um, an excellent use of ten dollars. Oh my god. <laughs> Loki. Oh. I know this is like mean. Can you? But can you put him in the closet? Yeah, that's a great idea. I'll be back. <laughs> no. No. Ah. No. <laughs> Get back here! Ugh. I don't know where he is. Oh no! <laughs> this Easy. is going really well. Um, um, so tell me more about how it's been a day. <laughs> I think I think at this point you have a fair idea. I do, but the listeners don't. <laughs> I mean, depending on how much you keep in, I guess. Uh, we'll see. It's <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah, it's been it's it's been a day. So I'm drinking wine, and I'm still gonna do shots because I don't give a fuck. Let's do it. Um, so when let's do ready. one. Okay. Wait, but first, tell me how you are. Oh well, okay. Was that all you had to say? Yeah. Oh, I, have okay. no, I have nothing of interest, just that it's been a weird day. <laughs> so your cat's being crazy and your dog's being a nuisance and the yeah. usual. Yeah. Pet parent things. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, my day, my day was really productive. Oh, um, I love that. However, it was like the ADHD productive where um, I would be on a roll doing something really well and then I would get super distracted and sidetracked by something. And it was not like, well... It was kind of one of my days where I can still complete my projects, but I didn't complete all of my projects that I started, if mm. that makes sense. And um, then you're going to get the fun ADHD thing where going back to the uncompleted projects is real hard. Yes. So where I'm going to basically just have to start over. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I did get some stuff done. I mean, so we're moving, which I'm pretty sure I've mentioned. We found a house. Um, but so we've been packing and at first it was really, really hard for me, but then we finally got some stuff done and now I've been like on a roll with it. So, mm-hmm. um, I got some of that done, was really productive with my work day. It was just all around like pretty productive other than a couple of unfinished projects. Yeah. I yeah. can see boxes behind you. So yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's weird. We packed yeah. our, our kitchen up yesterday, which I was so nervous that it was going to be like horrible. Cause when Jordan moved in, and we unpacked his stuff and packed our kitchens together. It was a nightmare. It was several hours of us like going through a bunch of stuff, getting rid of a bunch of stuff. It was like the first time we really had like a fight. <laughs> oh my god! So I was so nervous, but it ended up going really well yesterday and went really quick. So um, it made a lot of other things feel a lot less daunting, which was really great. The packing the kitchen went well. I'm so glad. Yes. And you- like are crushing it and the whole like life thing just Trying. in general at least today yeah yeah so doing pretty good um i will say when we cheers 
uh, one of the things that I have packed up is my skull planter, so I cannot make a choose place. <laughs> it's okay. I got two glasses today. Right. So. Okay. All right. Ready? Ready? That was good. We did pretty solid. That was Jack Honey, but it still hit like a fucking freight train. Yeah. Well, it's still Ooh. alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Did you okay. put it in the in the fridge or the freezer? No, I fucking forgot. Oh. Even though I listened to the previous episode today, and you said it in that episode. It's fine. It's alright. <laughs> Did you listen to that through the end? No, I have no idea what the surprise is. I, all I know oh. is that there is one. <laughs> Don't spoil it for me. If you listened to episode 68 and did not listen through all the way to the very end, there is a fun little surprise. So go back. Listen, I'm going to do that. <laughs> oh, okay. If you need any further proof that your devices are listening to you and then serving you advertisements... We received nothing bunt cakes at work today, and I, I shit you not, I like, I saw them in the office whenever I like got back from lunch or whatever, and I was like, oh yeah, bunt cakes, and now I'm getting served ads for nothing bunt cakes. Yep. Uh, I didn't Google it or look it up in any way. I just verbally said it out loud, and now I'm getting served. Nothing but cake advertisements. Um, yeah, it's either that or small possibility. I, I'm a firm believer that they listen. They watch us and they listen. Um, but it is a small possibility that like, because, um, you know, you share like maybe you're friends with the person on Facebook or you have a shared, like you, you have each other's phone numbers or something that because, like someone ordered it, mm-hmm. that that's why it's showing up for you. But, <laughs> like I said, I do believe in the. Well, they were listen. they were gifts because that's like a thing in corporate America, is that uh, other companies that you work with bring you presents during the holidays, and ooh. it's normally food. Yeah, this time um, I listened to you then. <laughs> it a thousand percent did because I have no idea who delivered them. Okay. Um. Yeah. Anyway. Great. In case you were worried about your privacy, it doesn't exist. It hasn't existed in a long time, so just let go of that. <laughs> um, well, anyways, I'm Caitlin. <laughs> and I'm Mari, the pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> this is Alcohol and Anecdotes, the boozy history podcast. <laughs> I said that kind of with a question mark. Um, which part is the question mark the boozy the history History? no that's definitely the the podcast the podcast that's the what is this i don't know why i said it with that inflection it's all good oh my god Uh (laughs) so i this is if you missed last week's episode this is the 69th episode. It is episode 69. It is. W- nice. W- welcome. <laughs> um, is that supposed to be my lead-in? 
I don't know. I, oh. <laughs> well, I, just, I mean, so I just was saying it. I don't know. Yeah, if you remember, if you okay, if you're new and this is your first episode, last week um, I gave a teaser for this week. Usually, I give Mari a time period, um, and in a location for their research. Um, but this time, because it's the 69th episode, I gave adjectives. Yep. I had I struggled with the adjectives. It was <laughs> I googled shit for days. It's like what do I fucking do with it? Um so I I fell back on an old reliable. We'll find out okay. more later. Okay. But what do you have that spurred these adjectives cuz I'm <laughs> desperately curious. Well, okay. So originally I was going to put this episode next week so that it was closer to New Year's. But because it was a 69th episode, I felt that something sexy, glitzy, glam, and bubbly would be perfect. Uh, and that is the French 75. Oh, okay. Because there is nothing more sexy than a French 75. I can't say I've ever thought of a French 75 as sexy, but I'm here for it. Honestly. I don't know. I mean, I feel like it just, like, it... I feel like you always see it in very, like glitzy like moments or like because like there's champagne in it so i just think of it as like a sexy cocktail like you know you didn't you didn't want to do like the slippery nipple or no you know no something like that okay right, <laughs> that's your choice i guess well this also just fit in with the time so no nah, i totally get it i'm way more excited to learn about the French 75 than I ever would be <laughs> to listen to you say the slippery nipple a bunch of times in a row. So don't even think that there's that much history for <laughs> isn't that isn't that just a shot? Yep. Okay. It sure is. So yeah. And not a good one. No. For the record. A very bad one. Yeah. They always are. Ugh, okay. They're never never good. <laughs> Shots these days are like someone's just like I have to make something no one else has made before. I'm just gonna mix a bunch of gross things together and call it something weird. Yep. Make it fun to say so that people want to order it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so this drink is not that. This drink is delightful. Um, it has probably been made for a long time, at least like some version of it some form or other um or at least like as long as all of the liquors that are included it included in it have existed for example in 1867 charles dickens made a visit to boston where he entertained guests in his room with tom gin and champagne cups and champagne cups consists of bubbly citrus juice and sugar served over ice um, and by adding Tom Gin, we basically got ourselves a French 75, as we now know it. Hmm. Um, but this wasn't, like, listed as a cocktail. Cocktails weren't even really a thing at that time. So, you know, who's to say? Um, but gin and champagne has always been a very classic combo, appreciated by many, as was cognac and champagne. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. <laughs> okay. I have to try and pronounce a French word. 
forgive me. I will do my best. So these drinks were originally called Soixante Counts or 75 in French. Uh, Soixante Counts. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. The French 75 was said to have a big kick, like being hit by the French 75 uh, gun. <laughs> you have a photo of it on the drive. Classic, because who doesn't name their cocktails after weaponry? <laughs> well, there's also a shot called a B-57. I'm just saying it's not a common tactic, is all. <laughs> For something so, so elegant and glitzy, I wouldn't have pegged it. No. But, and we'll get into it, but it is basically just booze. Yes. With some juice and sugar. So, it makes sense. Um, so the gun was made during World War One and was quite powerful. It allowed soldiers to fire 15 rounds of ammo per minute, which obviously at the time was a lot. Wait, can I, I want to go back just a yeah. real second. Absolutely. Uh, so I just need to vent about French numbers for a second. Okay. Because do you know what Soissant Kens means? Like actually? What? It's not, I mean, it is 75, but it's not. It means 6015. <laughs> the, the numbers 70 to 79 are so fucked. It's just absurd. Amazing. Like, it, you say 79, 79, which is 60, 10, 9. Amazing. And that's how you say 79. Uh, when I took French, this was like, should have been a red flag for me because I think it's the stupidest fucking thing. Um, so if you're wondering, like, anything to do with French numbers and why soixante quinze means 75 when soixante means 60, that's, that's your answer. <laughs> I mean, the same could be said about Roman numerals. I mean, I didn't say they were intelligent. <laughs> yeah. But sixty ten nine is a pretty stupid way to say seventy nine. It is. So, anyway, moving on. Moving on. Okay. So okay, yeah, fifteen rounds of ammo per minute is what this gun could do, or this like cannon, basically. Um, and I guess that this could be compared to a really powerful drink. Like we said, it is just two liquors, basically. With a splash of citrus, a sprinkle of sugar, in most cases, like, powdered sugar. Um, and I guess that that can, yes, make for a very powerful drink. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there is a big debate on whether the first ingredient should be gin or cognac. Um, we usually see it with gin, lemon juice, sugar, and champagne. Um, but it could make sense that it was supposed to be cognac all along, or at least like maybe that the French tried to make it that way, because what's more French than brandy and champagne mixed together? Nothing. Literally nothing. <laughs> I couldn't, other than saying se 79, ah. I can't think of a single thing. That's true. So. Well, then, I mean, to be fair, then even the name... Soissant Kuntz. Kuntz. Whatever. Soissant Kuntz. Is 
also very French. So <laughs> literally the entire drink is just as French as it gets. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I, I have to secede that. <laughs> um, so the drink was first listed in print as the 75 in Harry's ABC of Mixing Cocktails published in 1919. That's conflicting. The date, I mean... Some reports said 1922, some reports said 1915. I just settled on basically the average. Um, the book was written by Harry McElhone, who, uh, who listed the recipe as two ounces apple brandy, one ounce dry gin, one teaspoon of grenadine, and two dashes of absinthe. So kind of has the basic idea, but not quite what we know now. That sounds like a lot. Yes, <laughs> but it also explains why the drink claim was claimed to have a kick. I um, mean, anything with absinthe is bound to kick your ass, so... Yes. I get it. <laughs> In 1927, a man by the name of Judge Jr. published a cocktail book called Here's How. <laughs> I'm sorry, called what? Here's How. <laughs> You committed. It has an exclamation point, so... You have to. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, In the book, he listed a drink called a French 75 at this point. Um, This version contained dry gin, champagne, lemon juice, and powdered sugar. So, basically, like, the perfect lead-up to what we now know. Although, if I remember right, some of my sources, which I forgot to list and I will get to, some of my sources... (laughs) Um, did say that he credited uh, Harry but then just like changed it to his own version a little bit so I mean at least he used his sources it's called using your resources you know again, I haven't listed mine yet so my bad <laughs> so it- the drink what? <laughs> I was going to say, you usually do much better than I do, which is to say that I almost never cite my sources. So, Well, here, we're on it now, so I'll just say them quick. Uh, Wikipedia, <laughs> wine.com, tastingtable.com, liquor.com, and uh, an episode of the podcast Cocktail College by Vine Pair. There is an episode with a cognac expert and seasoned bartender, Frankie Marshall, and I will make sure to link that um episode for you because it it was quite great um and she the bartender frankie was um lovely to listen to she knew a lot so i love that i also really love the name frankie for women um it's an a plus name moving on (laughs) (laughs) the headline for the show um the drink was later listed in the savoy cocktail book which we have mentioned before uh, in 1930 is when it was published, I believe. This helped spark popularity for the drink and definitely also, like, since then has helped bartenders hone in on how to, like, make it. There are variations nowadays, as there are with everything, um, but I have a feeling that this is the kind of classic drink that shouldn't really be messed with. Like, if you see a recipe that's, like, raspberry French 75 or, you know, cranberry orange from 75 like honestly probably you should just stick with the classic version yeah there's just no need it's already chef's kiss exactly um 
I don't really have like a ton of fun facts, but I do have a couple of fun things for you. Um, one thing that I wanted to bring up, but not get into a lot, because literally every single podcast that talks about the French 75 goes into depth on this. Um, but Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart's characters drink French 75s in Casablanca. Okay. I don't see why that needs further exposition. Let me tell you. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm not going to, but I listen to so many people go into depth about the scene or play the scene or whatever. If you want to know more about it, just go watch Casablanca. Like, (laughs) Incredible. Oh, my God. They drink them a couple times, I think. And I think it's only mentioned... The name of it is actually only mentioned once in the movie, I think. But, like, yeah, that's it. That's all you need to know about that. Okay, moving on. Wow. (laughs) I listened to so many minutes of people talking about that scene. Okay. You're never going to get those minutes back. I'm so sorry. Literally never not. Um, (laughs) In an article written for (laughs) mom.com, Mixologist Benjamin Newby did a list of cocktail personalities, uh, as in, like, what your drink of choice says about you. Oh my god, I can't wait. We will make sure to link the full article um, on the web- on the episode page, but if your drink of choice is a French 75, according to Newby, your cocktail personality is the queen. I- so, the article states... Uh, this is a full quote. The queen is self-assured, poised, and assertive. Vibrant and forceful, she's a born leader. Wow, is this a Leo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this for so many reasons. Oh um, okay. I did. I literally copy-pasted this and put it in here, and I have not read the whole thing yet, so this is fun. Um, <laughs> oh. Newbie says about it, the cocktail that is good enough for the queen must sparkle, ooze luxury, and of course be delicious, but with a little extra kick. I recommend the French 75, a classic with champagne, lemon juice, sugar, and gin. (laughs) Ooze luxury. I think that's what I was trying to think of earlier when I was saying like sexy, glitz, glam, like it's, it's a luxurious cocktail. Okay, but I can't think of any worse way to bring luxury into a sentence than by preceding it with the word ooze. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, he, or, or sorry, I don't know. They are a mixologist, so maybe they just don't have any better adjectives. I I think that says not great things about mixologists. I think they're pretty intelligent. Um, They are, but when you talk about, like, drinks all day long, I'm not, like, you... Okay, The adjectives that you use would primarily be about drinks. Yeah. So I can see how ooze would would be a good good word for other cocktails maybe that you're making, so maybe it's at the forefront of your mind. Maybe, I don't know. You know what I mean? There are definitely times when I... I know, I see him. When, like, I try to explain things, and I've been talking to other people about beer all day, and then the only adjectives that I have for anything are, like, what I would use to describe malt. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, this is... I know there's a better word for this, but I've got nothing in the front of my mind right now. Like, nothing. Not a thing. (laughs) So, yes, oozing luxury is, is a little too much, but... 
It also kind of like makes me think that it's just more luxurious. I, for some reason, I feel like we haven't done this in a while, but I've got some pairings for you. Pairings. Wow, that was great. <laughs> Did you rehearse that? Nope. <laughs> As always, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth when you say pairings until it's happening. Get a full choir. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I try really <laughs> hard, actually. Um, that was great. So, Despite the fact that I'm completely wing it, <laughs> when I am winging it, I'm giving it my all. So. I get that. Okay, so this cocktail is going to be great with a lot of things. Um, I think that, like, primarily, when I think of it, I definitely think of New Year's Eve or I don't know, like maybe like like those like fabulous Christmas parties that apparently some offices hold that you see in the movies. You know what I mean? Those don't happen. No maybe one's like, willing to die hard. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. And they just they don't they don't happen. I'm sure that they do, but we've never experienced anything like that. Yeah, but that's legitimate, yeah. <laughs> So I definitely think of this drink for something like that. So most certainly hors d'oeuvres, shrimp cocktail, like those are going to nail it on the head. But it's also going to be really good. <laughs> with... Nail it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> head. <laughs> oh my God. Welcome to episode 69. I'm so sorry if this is your first time listening. I'm not. Honestly. Okay. Great. Anyways, please, let me get through this. So, <laughs> ravioli, risotto, like any like baked pasta dish, um, like definitely, you know, carbonara, something, pastas with seafood, gonna be amazing. Um, you can also do chicken cacciatore or chicken tikka masala. Yeah. Um, I, I've been eating a lot of paneer tikka masala lately, and I would definitely drink this cocktail with that. Okay, but can we talk about how hard te- paneer tikka masala slaps? It, it's so fucking it, good. It doesn't need to go that hard, but it really does. Ugh, okay, it brings me so much joy. <laughs> that and, like, garlic naan, and, like, I'm set. I honestly could eat that for the rest of my life. Same. Um, you can also do it with paella, tuna steak, um, like I said, like definitely lots of seafood dishes. Um, and you can also try it with like stuffed veal. Okay, I didn't see that um, coming. I know, I really didn't either. And then as far as cheese, creamy, um, and like semi-soft goat cheeses are definitely going to be winners for this cocktail. As always, you've left me very hungry, Caitlin. I was hungry writing this i ate dinner and i'm still hungry now so that checks out yeah um so for your recipe for this tonight was my first time making it um i so i pulled this recipe from liquor.com it's not something that i kind of tweaked to suit my own needs because literally i had no idea um and this recipe had really good internet ratings for whatever that's worth (laughs) it's how we judge most things in life these days so yeah it's fair so 
you're going to need one and a half ounces of gin. Uh, maybe like uh, Hendrix is what Flickr.com suggests. Three quarters ounce of fresh le- lemon juice. Three quarter ounce of simple syrup. And, um, two ounces of champagne. And then they also recommend a long spiral lemon twist for serving. So... First, you're going to combine your gin, lemon juice, and simple syrup in a cocktail shaker. Fill it with ice, shake vigorously, um, and then like maybe for about 20 seconds. And then you're going to strain it. Um, so they recommend through a Hawthorne strainer or a slotted spoon into a large flute. Top it with the champagne and then garnish with a lemon twist. Couple notes that I want to make on this based on a lot of the things that I listen to and also the small amount of bartending experience that I have. Um, double straining is going to be best because you're going to get out all of the pieces of ice that broke off while shaking. Um, so through a Hawthorne strainer and then also probably through like a, like a fine mesh strainer. Um, if you don't have the tools for that, then one strain is fine. Can you tell me what a Hawthorne strainer is? Here, I'll put a picture on the drive. Okay, thank you, because I don't think I actually know. Um, you'll see it, and you'll know. I mean, I figured, but there's, I've seen lots of types of strainers in bars, so. Okay, the picture should be on the drive under my stuff. Oh, that fancy thing has a name. Yes. Um, you've probably seen a lot in bars. It's like the one with the spring on it. Yes. Is the best way I can explain that. It does indeed have a spring. And I don't know that I've actually ever had to use one, but I've definitely seen them. Um, I've used them a lot. I definitely like them for making cocktails at home. Um, they're really nice for cocktails that you don't necessarily, like, you need to, like, not let the ice escape, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I use it, like, I recently purchased a new, like, cocktail set where um, I also have a fine mesh strainer, which I use way more often now because it gets at, like, all the all the pulp bits and all the, like, if you get, if you squirt your lemon in it and you get seeds in there, like, it just strains all of it out for you. Yeah. Like, I don't have any type of strainer for my alcoholic beverages, so... Like, when I make my... So you do a pint glass? Yeah, I do a pint glass. And when I make my whiskey sours, that's how I just just pint glass straight into the martini glass. It's fine. Um, Fun fact, those glasses were created for that purpose. They were not actually necessarily created for making or, like, for pouring your drink into... Um, and they've now become the standard for what people like businesses pour beer into, um, which is like super against beer rules. <laughs> oh yeah. They're the worst kind of glass you could put beer in because they just like lead all of the carbonation out. Yes. Um, they literally do nothing for the beer. Um, yeah, no, they were, they were mostly created for that. And then like, they're also stackable. So it was really nice to have them behind bars and that's kind of how they gained popularity, but. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, So, okay, speaking of glasses, so the liquor.com recipe... (laughs) 
I'm not even drinking carbonation. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Your burps are always interruptions. Okay, so that's that one is an eight an eight for interruption. And I don't know. A three point seven okay. for quality. Okay. You scored really I, high on the interruption. The, well, it's because I can't like just hold it in. It just they just spontaneously erupt. So, <laughs> whereas you're like you just you yeah. just like let them brew. I can't. That's I never know what's happening until it is happening. So it's okay. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where so, were we? Okay, so yeah, Liquor.com says to serve. The French 75 and a flute, which I feel like is also how we, like, see it in pop culture or, like, you know, we think of it because it has champagne in it, that that's how it should come. Um, but classic recipes called for it in. Oh, you tried. I didn't even try. I just. Oh, that one was hurting me. Okay. It's a zero. Sorry. That's fine. Classic recipes called for it in a Collins glass or a coupe glass. Um, And according to Miss Frankie, the best of the best bartenders will serve it in a coupe. She, in the episode of Cocktail College that I listened to, like, was insistent about, like, throw out your flutes, buy all of the coupes. That's what you should put your French 75 in. So... And also that's, for a long time, that's what champagne or prosecco was in. Yes, um, so not I have mine flutes. in. Yeah, and I definitely think it's quite lovely. Um, Which I your also just love these coupe glasses that we got. <laughs> they're so good. Listen, I think we're both suckers for vintage glassware. Yours are so yes. good. Yes. Um. So they're really good. And then the other thing that I was going to say too that, um, she said in that episode was. To when you like express the lemon peel uh, in your drink to do it like six to eight inches above it. So you're not putting too much more lemon oils into the drink because then you're just going to have like lemon flavored champagne. Um, I'm sorry. Did you say express your yes. lemon twist? Yes. That's what it's called when you like when you like when you have like a like a peel of a lemon and you like squeeze it over your drink. It's called expressing. I'm a. The only other connotation of using express in the context of squeezing things has to do with um, anal glands. Nice. So that is immediately what I thought of when you said that, and now I'm very uncomfortable. Um, It's my own doing, but I have to share that. This episode was supposed to be sexy, but. Um, so sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways. Um, but then she did also say not to put it in the drink. Like, you will see it as a garnish in a lot of things. If you, like, look at a, um, picture of a French 75, you'll usually see your lemon peel in there. Mm-hmm. But she said just not to put it in there. It's just going to add too many of the, the lemon, like, essential oils. Um, and you don't need all that extra pizzazz. Uh, you just need a, a little bit of it, a little spritz of it, and then your drink should be just perfect. 
a little expression of it, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the French 75, babe. Wow. Thanks, doll. <laughs> I had a fun one with this one. It was a good it's time for me. so good. Sorry, I'm still stuck on express. Anal glands? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. I, <laughs> it's fine. Okay. I love that. I also appreciate that I finally got a chance on this podcast to bitch about French numbers. Because, <laughs> listen, they're stupid. Because you've been stressed about it? Uh, obviously, for 69 episodes, I've waited for nothing else. <laughs> Duh. Um, you should have waited until episode 79, or come episode 79, don't forget, bring back your irritation. Don't have to threaten me with a good time, Caitlin. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, I, I, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I've ever actually had a proper French 75. I think I might need to fix that. Um, Like I said, this is my first one I've ever had, I think, and made it at home with myself. I did not do the simple syrup. Like they said, I wanted to follow the, like, old recipe. Yeah. And do the powdered sugar, which I really enjoyed. Um, I actually think that, like, earlier you mentioned one of them using, like, brown sugar. I think that would be fun. Brown sugar. Yeah, I feel like you mentioned a cocktail in this episode with brown sugar. Am I making that up? Oh, yes. You're making that up. I didn't mention any brown sugar today. If I did, it was on accident. It was only supposed to be powdered sugar. I guess I'll find out when I listen Not, back as I wait, edit. Wait, it might have been last episode. No. Which you listened to today. No. I'm pretty sure it wasn't, but we're going to find out. Anyways, um, no, it's fine. No, powdered sugar. Um, this is not a drink for brown sugar. I wouldn't say. Maybe if you did cognac instead of gin, I could see it. Ooh, but I yeah. feel like it would just make it too rich. And how does the powdered sugar not do that? Powdered sugar isn't rich. It's light and fluffy. Okay. I'm not going to argue makes with it, you. It makes it sweet. Powdered sugar is going to do a lot better job of making it sweet, but not making it like too rich or too thick. Mm. Brown sugar is definitely going to make it rich and thick. I'm just imagining like a nice little sprinkle, so like not a lot, but I don't know. I did like a full like tablespoon. See, I would not imagine that much brown sugar going no, into uh, it. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, like I just I like a little bit, not right. a lot. Maybe. With you cognac, know, maybe, maybe one day when I get my hands on some cognac, which is not a thing I usually buy, I'll give it a try. Right. Maybe we'll do an episode on Hennessy and then we'll, then we'll try mm. it. Mm-hmm. I'd be down for that. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Loki I, and I are at war right now, so. Yeah, well, that, that seems What to else be, is new? Yeah. <laughs> a common occurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, it is probably time to take an ad break and get a refill. Yep. <laughs> oh, it, I... <laughs> and we're back. Be back. We. Hello. Hi. Did you get another French 75? 
I did. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Love that for you. Uh, I am still working on my Snoop Dogg Cali Red. Right. We're doing well. I'm about half the bottle to go. So. Love it. Let's go. Here for it. Buckle Are you up. Doing another shot. Oh fuck. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. I've got time. Okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> and then after you pour it, put it into the fridge. Okay. Oh no. Oh fuck. May have over poured a bit. It's fine. <laughs> this is a very full shot glass. I'm not ready. That's okay. I'm not um, mentally or emotionally prepared. I just watched the reel that you sent me. Uh, that you sent me. Um, <laughs> yeah. I am so attracted to Daniel Craig in that ad. I... He's hot. He's always been hot, but like he yeah. always has. But like that the, ad, there's something about it. The dad moves. It just gets me going every time. Amazing. <sighs> okay, I'm about to do something you're really gonna find disgusting, which is chase Jack Honey with eggnog. So, <laughs> okay. I think it's gonna be great. We'll find out. I've never done this before. I'm, yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Delish. Uh. Oh my god. Um. That one had length. <laughs> it did. Miss man. Um, I'm gonna give that one a seven point two. Oh, nice. Yeah, that definitely a good makes one. up for the zero I got earlier. Whatever this shit is. <laughs> well, okay. Can you blame me? <laughs> Uh, okay. How's your eggnog? So good. Listen, I don't understand I what people have I actually would try it with Jack Honey. It was really tasty. It was. I would try it. I would try um, it. I don't but understand. But I think I'd have like three sips and I'd be like, this shit is too thick and too sweet. I'm out. I just, you can't. I don't understand. Anyway, that's fine. You can, you can go wrong. That's the answer. Mari, what do you have for us today? (laughs) So this half is going to be unhinged. Let's go. Because I have zero notes. You want to know why I have zero notes, Caitlin? That's not like new. (laughs) (sighs) But it's it's because it's all up here in the brain hole. Um, I can't do that. If I don't have a script, I would just go off the rails. I mean, listen. Wait. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure why that's what I said, but anyway, the reason why is because we're talking about my favorite person from history today, Anne Boleyn. Let's go. Uh, I could not think of a sexier, classier, uh, fancier human being. Amazing. So, um. This, this fits. This totally fits when I ask for. Yeah, I did many a google search to try and find something other than Anne Boleyn but every time I was like yeah the story's good but it's not as good as Anne Boleyn 
You tried. Um, I did. But listen. And you still found something that delivers, so. I just, the world is filled with uh, Anne Boleyn content, but I don't Mm. care because I'm obsessed. I also just watched uh, Blood, Sex, and Royalty on Netflix. Listen, these docudramas that they've been doing uh, for the last couple of years, I don't know if you've watched literally like any of them. There's a bunch. There's like one on that's got three series or three seasons about Rome. Mm. Um, then there's like one about the czars, like the last czars of Russia, yep. where it's like part documentary with historians and interviews of like mm-hmm. people who know what the fuck they're talking about, and then part reenactment. But it's not like your shitty reenactment. It's like really good reenactment right. with right. quality actors and inevitably lots of sex and i'm yes. just very here for it um but it's like it's like heavy reenactment like heavy good reenactment and then you still get the the historical aspect of it to like maintain the fact that this is like yeah real, not just like docudrama or like sorry historical drama Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Where it, like, it gives you enough of the reenactment where you can feel immersed in the story, but then gives you enough of the historical context to the historians that you can actually understand the context in which you're, like, watching. It's just really great. I really love these, like, trend, this trend that they've been doing. Um, For it. I recently rewatched the Rome series. They haven't... A series on Caligula. If you mm-hmm. remember, we talked about his sister, mm-hmm. um, whose name I'm blanking on right now. Something the Elder. Oh, Agrippina. There you go. Oh, God, it took me a second. All um, that was coming to my brain was Catherine, and I was like, "That is not right." <laughs> no, no, it's not. But that's okay because there's a Catherine in this story. So let's circle right. back and get down to it because. Who knows how this is going to play out? I, I also, I did not know that that that. Sorry, what was the Netflix series that you said? Blood, Sex, and Royalty. It just okay. came out like a recently. Great, I did not know that that existed. And as a person who loves historical fiction, because I cannot stand how dry some documentaries are, and I live for the drama. Docudramas are peak everything for me oh yeah i did not know that that existed i'm so excited it's so good it's very like it's definitely how do i put this so it's less true to the context than their other docudramas have been okay for example um at one point she says team boleyn for the win so Mm. To, like, give you context, they definitely add a modern twist to it. There's a lot of, like, hip-hop music in it. But I think that that's valid because whereas with the other ones that they've done, they're very true to the historical era because these are stories that haven't received a lot of, like, light in modern media. Anne Boleyn is, like, almost to the point where it's overwrought. It's overdone, I say, fully knowing I'm about to do it again. But... Um, it just means that like it's really hard to do it in a way that is original and not just sharing the same details over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. 
and I am obsessed with the way they did it. Even I learned things. Another thing that happens all the time is that Anne, the actress who plays Anne, routinely breaks the fourth wall to explain things directly to you, which I think is brilliant. It's so good. I love that. Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. I'm very for it. Very cool moment. Yeah, and I also learned some things, which I know a lot about Anne Boleyn, so it's surprising when I learn new things. Like, a lot of the time when I'm listening to Anne Boleyn-based content, it's mostly familiar to me, whether or not I specifically explicitly remember it or not, because there's a lot to know. Um, It's very rare that I hear completely new things, but I did from this series, so... Right. Um, it's a, as good of a, a recommendation as I can give, honestly. Let's dive in. Yeah. Um, first of all, Caitlin, how much do you know about Anne Boleyn? Um, I know the basics. I've, okay. I, I, I don't know a lot. Okay. That's fine. So you there's probably been, there's been like a podcast or two that I listen to while like doing something else or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know a lot. That's fair. Um, it's really hard to know, and as a person, um, from today's perspective, just because a lot of what we have about her is like secondhand. Mm-hmm. They're like. We still have her book of hours. So that was like the prayer book, basically, that she mm-hmm. had. It's beautifully illuminated. And there are some really telling notes in that that give us an idea of who she was as a person. But other than that, like most of her letters that she wrote to like King Henry um, weren't, didn't survive. So. It's kind of hard to know, but we're going to dive in nonetheless, and we're going to find out some real cool shit about this badass woman. Um, Let's go. So, as with many women in this era, we don't know exactly when she was born, but most historians would peg it around 1501. She was born in Norfolk, and... um, her family had a lot of ties to Norfolk, even though her family was, like, from relatively, like, humble origins, it would build ties with more established families, and that's kind of how they built themselves up. Her father was a diplomat. Um, he, his name was Thomas. He was like the French ambassador or like the English ambassador to France, I guess is what I meant to say. Um, And that opened a lot of windows for Anne. She and her sister spent time in the French court. That's where they got a lot of their education. Um, So they spent a lot of time with both the French queen and the French queen's daughter-in-law. And Anne learned from them a shit ton about being well-educated, about being well-spoken. 
about standing up for your beliefs. These are all like important things that have kind of been lost in the modern narrative of who Anne Boleyn was. Because I think like a lot of people, when they think of Anne Boleyn, they don't think good things most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like she was a woman who convinced Henry VIII to leave his first wife and then died. Like is the story that a lot of people know. Like full summary. That's the extent of it. They don't know a lot more about her. Right. And a lot of that is because of misogyny. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Um, So a lot of those elements have kind of been lost in her story as it is known in popular depictions. Um, Like, I think back to the show The Tudors, Mm -hmm. which was a show I fucking loved, okay? And still do to this day. But uh, Anne's commitment to religious reform was, like, really underplayed in that show. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm all over the place. I have absolutely no narrative structure here i'm just talking at this point okay that's not necessarily a bad thing so i'm gonna recenter a little bit by telling you a fun fact which is that today at work i was talking to josie our friend josie and i was like yeah so i texted caitlin and i was like would this be stupid if i covered anne boleyn and she was like oh my god wait funny story And she told me that her siblings are constantly making up new nicknames for her. And um, right now, her nickname is Anne Boleyn. Oh, good. (laughs) Why? I don't know. She's like, I have no idea why they picked this. But um, they just think... This episode is for you. Yeah. She was like, I literally last night was writing my to and from on my Christmas gifts. And it was like two her brother from Anne Boleyn and it's fucking hilarious Amazing. Um, I love that I so love Josie that. gets yet another shout out right um, okay so re-centering if you guys um, reach out to us and talk to us about the podcast we'll give you shout outs <laughs> yeah honestly Josie gets a lot of them um, so be like Josie talk to us about the podcast and then we'll talk about you <laughs> if that's a thing you want I guess Okay, I'm once again going to attempt to refocus my ADHD dreams. <laughs> ADHD wine drunk brain. <laughs> I'm doing really great. I'm gonna start calling them ADHD dreams. <laughs> it's an ADHD dream. What can I say? I'm living the ADHD dream. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Allow me to proceed in a more coherent, (laughs) less all over the place manner. Um, Okay. So, Amberlynn, born approximately 1501. It might have been 1507. We don't really know. Um, 
she, because of the status that her father held, spent time abroad outside of England, uh, first serving Margaret of Austria, who was the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Maximilian I. Um, so she was in the Netherlands for this period, but then she, um, and she was really young during that time as well. So like maybe around 12. Um, and then she pretty quickly moved into the French court, um, thanks to her father's position where she served, um, Queen Mary of France and then Queen Mary's stepdaughter, Queen Claude. And, um, she was in the French court for like quite a long time, actually. She served under Queen Claude for seven years, which is a, a long time for an English woman to be serving in a foreign court, I feel like. Um, she became fluent in French. Um, uh, French court, as you might imagine, placed a lot of value on things like art and fashion and um kind of like the haute couture of medieval knowledge does that does that make sense fashion yeah it does make sense okay so she was very trendy for her time i guess is what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. and um this is like this is her most What's the word? When children are malleable and subject to influence. Malleable? Yeah. Naive? No. Oh my god. It's gonna drive me nuts if I don't think of this word. Children are malleable. Yeah, when like you can teach them stuff, like they, they're easy to influence. All of those things? Someone's screaming the word into the void right now. <laughs> Uh, okay, anyway, you get the gist. Um, impressionable! That's the word I was looking for. There you go. I got there eventually. So she's at a, like, her most impressionable age in the French court. So she becomes very, uh, very French in styling, which when she goes back to England... Makes her a little bit exotic, honestly. Um, as you can imagine, French and English people being rivals that they are mm. uh, at this time period, it's kind of outlandish to see someone in the English court who so fully um, has learned from the the habits and the culture of the French court. Um, this does a variety of things to Anne's reputation to start. The first is that um, she has a sister named Mary, who I feel like a lot of people are familiar with now. Um, Maybe not so much 10 or 15 years ago, but nowadays they tend to know who Mary was. Mary also was in the French court and was a mistress to King Francis I. Um... And then when they came back to England, she became King Henry's mistress for, like, a while. Not, like, a short time, like Hollywood would like to present, but, like, a couple of years. Sure. So. Prominent. Yeah. 
but being related to like everything in uh, I guess in high society in Europe at this time is about who you know who you cl- you're close to but also how those people are perceived so if you're related to someone who is the mistress of the king it's this weird like double-edged sword where you like it does you a lot of good because the king is bestowing favors upon your family but it also kind of backfires in that you know people will have a reason to look down on your family so it's like yeah you got this fancy title but you did it because your daughter was whoring herself out to the king basically is the general vibe of that dichotomy there cannot be any other reason that someone would get in the title other than because a young lady worked for it right and even so even if that's how they got it like cool whatever like it it so doesn't matter but in the medieval mindset it definitely mattered that that's how you got your like position of privilege and it did like that's how like we'll get into it there's a (laughs) there's a lot to happen here so not only is Anne kind of exotic but her sister has been the king's mistress and um there's just like a lot of like air of like mystery and sexiness around the Bolin family at this point because of all of that. Um, also the English like to pretend that the French court was somehow way more scandalous than their own when it came to sexual encounters. That's probably honestly not true. Uh, it's probably just as salacious everywhere, but I believe that. Um, that's, you know, when you're supposed to be a good buttoned up Christian society, you don't like to think that of yourself. Um, (laughs) we're perfect. Um, except for Henry, who wasn't perfect, but it was allowed not to be perfect. Obviously. Well, that's because he was a man. It's because he was king. Not only because he was a man, but because he was a king. Um, one of the same <laughs> sort of like no, one know. one yeah. of them but on steroids you know yes yes um <laughs> so she's eventually called back to english court as we discussed and originally her father is actually planning for her to marry uh an irish cousin of hers named james butler and like not a fan of this idea mm. And because yeah, he's in a box. He's having a good time. Put him in the box in the closet. <laughs> I just, I wish they had an off button, <laughs> like just like just like uh, just, <laughs> and then I, could, you know, um, <laughs> maybe I should have stuck with Neopets. Fuck or Tamagotchi. I don't fucking yeah. care. Okay, but can we talk about Neopets for a sec? I was highly obsessed for a really long time. (sighs) Okay. Okay. 
So originally, she's supposed to come back and marry James Butler, who is like, he becomes a count. So like, it wouldn't have been a bad life, to be honest. But she's just not really feeling that. And because she spent so much time in the courts of these very intelligent, very well-educated women, she Mm -hmm. is no stranger to, like, trying to take her circumstances into her own hands insofar Mm -hmm. as she is able. So she starts scheming, and she begins to pursue, which is, like, really not the done thing, mind you. Women don't pursue men in this era. She begins to pursue a romantic situation with a guy named Henry Percy, so he's the son of the current Earl of Northumberland at the time. And they're, like, getting along well to the point where, like, it's rumored they were even secretly betrothed. Ooh. I know, right? Which would have been a huge issue, <laughs> mind you. Because not only was he already betrothed, but she was like her family was in discussions to get her betrothed. Mm -hmm. So it would have been really scandalous if they had come public with that at the time. But um, Thomas Wolsey, who if you have ever heard of anything about this time period, you're familiar with him. He is like Anne Boleyn's biggest villain for a long time. Um, he is a cardinal, and he serves Henry VIII uh, as a, a chief advisor, basically. And he catches wind of this secret betrothal between Anne and Henry Percy. Henry Percy, mind you, like I said before, Anne is like, her family has a solid station. They have a solid position within court, but it's not a high position. It's pretty subpar when you compare it to Henry Percy's family and what would have been expected of him in his marriage. So Thomas Wolsey gets wind of this and he's like, absolutely the fuck not, not a happening. Um, This cements like a fierce, like, combative nature between Anne and Thomas Wolsey Mm -hmm. that will come into play later. So Anne, she doesn't get married, obviously, to Henry Percy. She somehow evades getting married to James Butler, her Irish cousin, which marrying cousins at the time was, like, pretty par for the course. So Mm -hmm. get your titties in a twist about it. Um, I'm not as bothered by... Especially at that time, cousins marrying cousins. I'm more bothered by 35-year-old men marrying 13-year-old women. Yeah, this is not a case of that either. So we're in the clear on that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So after this, Anne is kind of like she's at court, but she's not necessarily like getting A-plus grades in court, if you will. So uh, her father sends her back to Hever Castle, which is their, like, family home. Hever Castle, by the way, still stands. You can go there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much of the castle you can see, but it's, it's a real place. 
which is kind of cool, and I definitely want to go there, and I want to stand where Anne Boleyn stood. I think I would maybe... My soul might transcend to the next level <laughs> of the Matrix if I did that. It looks that, like but... the entirety is still standing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. there's some beautiful vines. Right. I know that it's the whole thing still standing. I just don't know how much you can actually tour of oh, it. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, there's like pictures on the interior. Mm-hmm. So it looks like you must be able to tour at least some of it. Yeah. Um... If anyone wants to sponsor my visit to Hoover Castle, um, I accept Venmo. I'm just if anyone saying. wants to sponsor us doing live shows in Europe. Uh, and thereby getting both of us to Hoover Castle, we have a Patreon. Just saying. Yeah. Patreon, you can reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> if you want to develop a grant that's specifically for us, we can work with that. I'm just saying. We'll find a way. Reach out. Yeah. Okay. So, Han, Han, Han. I keep saying Han. I don't. <laughs> I'm not okay. <laughs> um. Okay. So, Anne goes back to her castle for a bit. Then she comes back to court. And in 1526 is when they kind of begin this like dance that everyone's familiar with right mm, the salsa this the mambo <laughs> Mam- mambo mambo yeah. number five yeah that one two three four five <laughs> you nailed it yeah that was a medieval song um <laughs> how'd you know i didn't know lou was that old Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) This is so dumb. Okay. Okay, so 1526. She's been around, but she finally catches Henry VIII's eye. Now, it's important to note that despite how fucking gorgeous... The women who have played Anne Boleyn have been. I am looking specifically at Natalie Dormer, mm. one of the most attractive humans on the planet. Yeah. And I would like to once again state that I watched the show in high school and it took me until I was 27 to realize I was bi. I just don't understand how, looking back, because she's stunning. <laughs> I don't. I know the feeling. It's fuck. <laughs> it's. It's insane. Okay, so she's gorgeous, but historically accurate Anne Boleyn, probably not drop-dead gorgeous. Like, she was cute, but she wasn't, like, turn-the-king's-head cute. What she had going for her, which was, like, the sexiest thing ever, was her fucking brain, okay? Mm-hmm. She was so smart. Um, And she also had her convictions and wasn't willing to necessarily sacrifice those. And she also knew how to use a situation to the advantage of the things she cared about. Mm -hmm. So she begins receiving the attentions of Henry VIII and everyone 
And the brother knows that, like, she really was like, oh, no, I could never. Like, mm. um, <laughs> exactly like that. Yeah. Uh, it's a direct sure. quote yes. from <laughs> Anne Boleyn. <laughs> I interviewed her myself. <laughs> Went back in time. What can I say? Um, okay, so everyone thinks that she was just, like, playing hard to get. But that's not necessarily the case. That, like, might have played into it to some degree because Henry was known for his love affairs and he was known for quickly discarding the women that he tired of. They would have known this firsthand, the Bolin family, because of Mary's experience. Even though she was his mistress for, like, a couple of years, when he was done with her, he was done. Like, that was all, right? Bye. And then, yeah, and then he basically peaced out, and Mary was left to like pull together her own life. Mm-hmm. She, Mary also, it should be noted, didn't receive additional support from her father after that. Um, well, she's a disgrace. She got. Yes. Not only that, done. but he also had now firmly transferred his attention to Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, and was really looking to leverage Anne to gain the family some more power and wealth. And um, it's easier to do that if her reputation is unsullied. Right. So Anne is, once again, um, sent, and I say sent very specifically, to Hever Castle. She probably wouldn't have had the agency to decide I'm going to go home now because the king is like really getting up in my business. If her father had wanted her to continue with that and to be the king's mistress, she probably wouldn't have been allowed to leave court. Right. This is reinforced by the fact that Hever Castle was his home. It wasn't her home and she could only be there with his permission so if she was at Hever Castle, it was with her father's blessing. Um, so she goes home to Hever, and it's at this time that they begin exchanging a lot of really, like, there's a lot of love letters. As I mentioned before, uh, not a lot of Anne's letters that she wrote during this time survived. I haven't actually, I don't know if I know of any. Um, I'm not an expert in their like correspondence, but I just don't have any readily available in my memory. And I feel like I've learned a lot about this situation. However, a lot of Henry's survive. This is a fun fact. I feel like you'll enjoy the surviving letters from Henry to Anne from this time period are held in the Vatican. <laughs> oh my god! Which is so ironic. <laughs> it's insane. Um, yeah, they're literally in the Vatican archives. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> which yeah, if you... <laughs> If you know anything about the story, and we'll get to it, the Vatican does not does not reflect well in this story. Um, yeah, well, 
Because she energy just owns everything, you know? Right. Um, at one point in the letters, like, this is the most sexually explicit example that I could find. Again, I am not a historian and I did not, I, sorry, I am a historian. I'm not an expert in their correspondence. And I didn't sit down and read all of them, so I couldn't tell you if there were more um, explicit references than this. But at one point in one of the letters, he says that he wants to kiss her pretty duckies. Oh my. Can you guess what duckies mean? I want to be really innocent and think it means toes. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Can't decide if that would be more or less innocent, honestly. I'd rather um, a foot fetish. <laughs> no, it literally means tits. Like, mm. he's writing her uh, how he wants to kiss her breasts. Her tiggle bitties. Yeah, her tiggle bitties. And um, she is, like, at Hever Castle, not... Are these on display at the Vatican? Or are they just in possession of? They're in the don't... possession okay, of the okay. Vatican. Okay. I doubt they would put these on display. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you never know. They are the crits <laughs> through and through, so. They are. Um, so she's in Hever Castle getting these letters and also receiving gifts. Uh, at one point, she receives a gift from him. It's like this lavish brooch, something or other. And she fucking sends it back. She's like, nah, dude, like, you're cool. Do but better. like, <laughs> I've got a reputation to maintain. I could not possibly accept oh my God. your gifts. She's like, you cannot buy my love and affection. Nope, you sure cannot. Henry, being the insatiable asshole that he is, finds this just maddeningly, I cannot say that word, maddening, yeah, maddeningly, maddeningly, yeah, irresistible, it just like (laughs) drives him fucking insane with lust. Yeah, you know, when when a girl says no... You just keep trying. Until she doesn't say no anymore. Yeah, this is like... This is like the quintessential history book example of that. uh, Unfortunately. No means no. Just gonna put that out there. Yes. I assume most of our listeners... Are aware of that. Yeah. (laughs) But just in case. Just No means no. Uh, And we'll talk about their... Consent. um, (laughs) The complexities of their relationship and all sure, that. Sure. So, while she's at Hever, I think a turning point for their relationship, from like my studying, has been when Henry is um, presented with the possibility that he will lose Anne completely, and when Anne is reminded of how fragile. Um, life is because she gets the sweating sickness and like literally sweating sickness so the sweating sickness is a plague that was going around at the time it was really common where um it was the biggest symptom was that you just like lost all of your bodily fluid through sweat you got these sores 
mm-hmm. it hit really fast and it it had a really high mortality rate. Um, not surprising for the medieval era, honestly, most illnesses had a higher mortality rate than what we would necessarily be used to Mm -hmm. because medicine was not what it is today, to say the Mm -hmm. least, but it, it was like a serious thing, um, to the point where when she gets the sweating sickness, Henry sends his second best doctor. Obviously he's the king of England, so he He needs his best. He needs his best doctor for his own self. But he sends his second best doctor to Anne to make sure she recovers. She does eventually recover, obviously, because if she didn't, this would be the stupidest story I've ever told. story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I think... She had plot armor. Go figure. (laughs) Fuck. Um, (laughs) So... That, I think, is a turning point for them. Because Henry realizes she could die. She almost Mm -hmm. died. I almost lost her. And I really hated that experience. Mm -hmm. And she realizes the degree to which, first of all, Henry is willing to go. Um, And I think it might have been a turning point for her in realizing that it wasn't just lust. It wasn't just a tryst that he was looking for to some degree at this point, it's clear Henry legitimately cares for Mm -hmm. Anne. It's like he, to put it in like the most understandable terms was definitely the one who fell in love first with Anne and Mm -hmm. Anne was the one left catching up. That is not to romanticize their relationship. Right. Um, but that is, kind of where they're at at this point. Right. So they begin a more serious flirtation, but Anne makes it abundantly clear. I will not be your mistress. I'm not going to have sex with you. I'm not willing to sacrifice my honor for anything less than marriage, basically. Respect. Yeah. They're demanding something from a king. Let's go. Well, and not only that, but demanding something from a king when she doesn't have a super powerful position within court. Right. She's not willing to give him exactly what he wants until he gives it to her. Uh, gives her what she wants. That is. Um, gives it to her could be perceived a few ways, I guess. Um <laughs> And episode 69. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a small problem with this plan, as everyone knows, which is that Henry's already married. His wife hasn't shown any sign of dying anytime soon. And they've been... <laughs> ma- <laughs> what a... I'm so sorry. <laughs> what a phrase. His wife has not shown any sign of dying. God damn it. Get out of here, Kathy. <laughs> I am trying to live my life. Get out of here, Kathy. <laughs> oh my god. Can't you just let me go through my midlife crisis and love this woman? 
<laughs> oh, incredible. Oh, my God. <laughs> Get out of here, Kathy. Amazing. <laughs> <sighs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, Catherine, uh, Kathy, as we'll call her from now on, I, it's a vibe. Uh, being that there are three Catherines, you got to differentiate them somehow. Um, so, Kathy's posing a real problem for a number of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> the first is obviously that she's not dying. The second is that she's been married to Henry for a long time and they have a legitimate daughter. So it makes it really hard to claim that they've never had sex and therefore get an easy annulment. And third is that she's really well liked in England, like really well liked. So Henry always God. So Henry <laughs> is aware that any effort to put Catherine aside will be a severe hit to his reputation. So it's a it's a seriously big deal that he decides to try it anyway. Of course, there is the fact that Henry, so some background information on Henry, in case you didn't know anything other than that he's the king who had six wives and he's a fuckhead. Um, <laughs> are that he was the second son of Henry VII, who was widely considered a usurper king who had a really spurious claim to the throne already and the only way that he was able to reign to some modicum of success was the fact that he married uh, Elizabeth of York which that's a whole other story if you want a TED talk on the Wars of the Roses someday I would be happy to give it to you but that sounds like a Patreon episode. episode Or something, you know, we'll, you know, yeah. we'll get it out there one way or another. Uh, if you want it on a Patreon episode, go to Patreon, become a patron, and tell us you want it as a Patreon episode. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, there you go. Um, so, Henry VII is the first tutor. So, Henry VIII is only the second tutor king in this dynasty. It's a very young dynasty. And it's built on very fragile footing. So Henry is abundantly aware that he, in order to firm up this foundation and continue his dynasty onward, needs to have a son. Catherine, our friend Kathy, has not given him a son. And God forbid we ever fucking consider that maybe a daughter is an adequate successor yeah. um, ever. Well, women are incompetent. They have menstrual cycles. so And they've never for once been the best monarchs that England's ever seen, ever. Um, the top three monarchs I can think of are women in England, to be honest. But what? No, you just don't know all of them. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that was sarcasm. I'm kidding. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. <sighs> Henry's got a lot of pressure on his shoulders um, by modern, or by contemporary, not modern, by contemporary standards. He needs to have a son. Catherine is no longer of child-rearing age. She is devoutly Catholic, but not really interesting to Henry anymore, even though he's, like, bullied the Pope at some point into declaring him this like made up title of defender of the faith <laughs> um, because this is also a time well, it's of, because it's it's what suits him at the time right and it's also a time of religious upheaval where um, you got dudes like Martin Luther just fucking shaking things up <laughs> another, uh, another point that I wanted to bring up with all of that <laughs> what <laughs> What did I say that was so funny? I have an anecdote for you. May oh, I? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah. So. Wait, hold on. I The other thing that I wanted to say okay. with all of that before I forget was that, like I said, Henry was a second son. He wasn't necessarily destined to be king. He was the spare with of the heir and a spare uh, fame. He was the spare. So... He really ne- like wasn't necessarily mm. um, meant to become king when he was born, but and that's he's just how easily it- replaceable. He not only is he easily replaceable, but he understands the impact of mm. not only having no male children, but of the possibility of only having one because they right. can die. Right, like childhood mortality was prominent yes um so he's got he's very aware of all of the stakes anyway what's your what's your anecdote <laughs> okay um so you said martin luther <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were talking about christianity and um it just sparked this core memory that I have. <laughs> <laughs> oh good oh good so my parents my parents will claim that they raised me very Christian. Um, they did not. We okay. we went okay. to church sometimes. Yep. And then all of a sudden, there was a time in my life where one of my parents was getting remarried and all of a sudden was like, nope, we are really big Christians because you're Christian and we need to, you know, pretend like we fit in with that. Yeah. So all of a sudden... I was a person who I never had first confirmation. I mean, I very rarely went to Sunday school. Like maybe went I went to Sunday school at like several different churches, whatever. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden I get dropped in. Um, oh, no, I didn't get first communion. So then all of a sudden I get dropped into confirmation and I know nothing. Nothing. Like, nothing. I know the basics. I know some of the Bible stories. I don't know a lot. And I mean, at the time, I was like, I'm down to believe in God. Like, this is fine. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm in confirmation and I go to all these confirmation classes or whatever. And I don't know anything. And all the people around <laughs> me know a lot. 
<laughs> so one night, the our, our youth pastor is talking about Martin Luther. <laughs> mm-hmm. I... <laughs> Martin Luther to me was Martin Luther King Jr. No! Oh no! Oh god. So, well, like, so Martin Luther King Jr., which obviously means that his dad was also Martin Luther King. So to me, those are the two Martin Luthers that I know. <laughs> and he is preaching about Martin Luther and when he spoke the words that he spoke and blah 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 and he's like going on and on and on and on and I'm like which Martin Luther because to me there's two <laughs> neither are the ones that he's talking about the girl next to me finally turns and she goes the guy who wrote the bible <laughs> which isn't even true which isn't even true I mean like like yeah shut down that was like that was the start of me becoming an introvert was that moment with this girl when she looked at me and was like are you fucking dumb and i was like i guess and i barely spoke a word in public since (laughs) okay can i tell you my core memory of when i became yes an introvert okay so i'm gonna tell you this in the context of if I ever were to do stand-up comedy, this is how I would do it. I would like get up and I would introduce myself. Like, anyone have those memories that they think about like wide awake at 3 a.m. that are just like your anxiety resurrecting all of the shittiest possible things? Uh, well, here's mine. When I was in second grade, we, as a class, uh, in this rural community that I lived in, would go around and pick um, vocabulary words off of the vocabulary list to be, like, responsible for that week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, well, this is, like, so unlike me. I can't even believe that I did this. But I did. I picked... Um, a word and when it came my turn to like claim it I was like I'll pick angel <laughs> and everyone in the class goes uh it's angle yes it definitely says angle uh Thus began. Well, my, let me just like, give you all a 180 and get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think about that all the time because I said it with such like sassy fucking confidence. Like, you all are suckers. I'm picking Angel. It wasn't Angel, it was Angle. <laughs> and then I would finish my comedy skit. It would probably go on several tangents as they do. But then I would be like, okay, that's my time. Thanks, everybody. Y'all have been angles. And that's how I would sign off. <laughs> that's great. My, I love that. You should start stand-up. Uh, I have nothing to fill whatever period of time would go Oh, in but there. wait. The introvert status of having already fucked up in front of people once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, you know, fear unlocked at that time, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to circle back now to heretics. That's what I was talking about. Got it. Yep. It took a second. I got there. 
Okay, so that was all to say that Henry VIII was very like, yeah, the Pope is great. Um, I am defender of the faith at this time. He didn't matter that he slept around because he was a king. He could do that. Um, And the rules of your faith don't matter if you're rich, obviously. Right. So he decides, even though they've been married for like 19 fucking years and they have a child together, that somehow his marriage to our friend Kathy is invalid and therefore he must receive an annulment from the Pope. Anyone who knows the story knows full well how that goes, which is to say poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, try convincing literally anyone that you've been married to someone for 19 years and it's all a sham. Right. Um, it's not going to go well. <laughs> so Anne uses this as her moment. Because like I said, she was a woman of conviction. She also happened to have some pretty radical ideas about faith. One of which was that the Pope wasn't infallible and he was not like the be-all, like the end-all be-all of faith. So she begins to plant seeds of ways in which Henry could supersede the Pope's decision by using this um, radical ideology that says the the king is subject to nobody but God. Um, he cannot be commanded to do anything by the Pope because He's God's chosen representative on earth. God just picked him up and was just like, here you go. Yeah. Put him on a little platform. Yeah. With a fancy <sighs> hat and a cape and was like, here you go. <laughs> All of those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the rights to a lot of money. So Henry... Plucked by God, given a fancy hat and a cape. Um, And, you know, Henry's ego is a really big fan of this idea that no one can tell him what to do. So he eventually declares himself the head of the church in England, which is how Mm. the Church of England became a thing. And it's still a thing because... Charles the third. I mean, yeah, but Charles the third, the current monarch in the UK, is like he's head of the church in England. He's head of like mm-hmm. this is a something that Henry the Eighth started that is carried on to today, which is insane to me because that's five hundred years. <laughs> This is part of why I don't like religion. They just make it up as they go. And oh, they keep yeah. claiming that it's a thing they've been doing forever. And it's like, no, it literally isn't. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Um, so Henry uses this as a way of being the head of the church. 
And then he gets to decide not only what happens to our friend Kathy, but also with the help of a new friend that he has developed, a guy by the name of Thomas Cromwell, um, starts dissolving the monasteries across England and transferring the wealth of all of these monastic orders from essentially the Vatican, which they were overseen by, to the English crown. So it's a very wealthy time for for the English crown. Mm-hmm. Um, it also meant that he could bestow these lands that he was basically confiscating from the monastic orders to whomever he pleased. And he was a man known for having a lot of upstarts in his court. Um, if you've seen the Tudors, you'll know that Henry Cavill played a man by the name of Charles Brandon. And there's a scene where you wholly get to see Henry Cavill's ass, which is honestly core memory. Canonical for my life. Um, And, like, I only bring that up, first of all, because it's Henry Cavill's ass, obviously. (laughs) Secondly, because Charles Brandon was an upstart, and he was, like, Henry VIII's best friend. So... Like, he kept people very close to him who may not have come from the noble background that England was used to people in court being from. He also, like I said, in being head of the church, can do as he pleases with his marriage. So he officially declares that his marriage to Kathy is over. Mm-hmm. And at some point in 1532, um, Anne relents and decides we're this close to making this a reality. So they have sex for reals. Um, That's not to say that they weren't experiencing intimacy before that. Uh, as one of my favorite historians, her name is um, Susanna Comb something. I cannot remember her last name right okay. now. Susanna. She's in all of the Anne Boleyn documentaries that are produced these days. Okay. She's in Sex, Blood, and Royalty. <laughs> she said in Sex, Blood, and Royalty, in fact, they may not have been having intercourse, but I'm pretty sure they were doing anything but... <laughs> Yeah, 69. Uh, so probably 69-ing. It all comes back. It all does, yeah. So they were just really getting um, down to business right? in every way, but a way that could get her pregnant, because that would be proof that she was having sex, obviously. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so at some point in time, in 1532, they finally full-on fuck Mm-hmm. And we know this because she gets pregnant. She gets pregnant. And a few weeks after they find out that she's pregnant, they get married in secret because mm-hmm. like, as far as the English court is concerned, Henry's mm-hmm. still married. Right. And this technically makes him a bigamist. Like he is married to two women at the same time, even though he set one of them aside. Yeah. 
Um, Henry's not a good dude. I don't know if you gathered this, uh, but he's not a good guy. Um, (laughs) So at this point, they get married in 1533. And they have been courting, like, especially Henry has been courting her for seven years. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a long time to be obsessed with somebody before you actually get what you want. So they get married. Henry finally, like, is like, no, this marriage thing with Kathy is over. And he gets basically the English court on side where that's concerned. And then he declares that he and Anne like their marriage is now legitimate because he was like his marriage was already invalid to Kathy anyway. So his marriage to Anne is legitimate. That makes the child that she's carrying legitimate. Mm-hmm. And it means that she can have her coronation. She stays in the tower of London, which isn't just a, like a dungeon. It's also Royal apartments and whatnot. So she stays in the Tower of London. She's coronated. She's very heavily pregnant at this point. It's a joyous affair. Henry goes all out for it. This is in, what, I think May 1933. Um, and when she eventually gives birth, as we all know, it's not a boy. It's in fact a girl. Um, this how is How dare ob- her? How fucking dare. Even though it's the semen that decides the gender but you know it's fine no it is the woman that mm-hmm. makes that decision it's obviously not a uh, god's hand or anything mm. okay <laughs> <laughs> the amount of sarcasm in this episode oh god it's it's extra for real yeah okay so they continue trying to conceive Anne experiences one miscarriage, um, but they're they're not they haven't lost hope yet. She gets pregnant again, mm-hmm. but at this time, Henry is beginning to get a impatient, b um, incredibly bored. Uh, he's not he's not used to the prolonged courtship. And mm-hmm. now that he has had what he wants insofar as, like, having sex with Anne, yep. all he really needs is a male heir, and she's also not providing that. So right. he's bored. Right. So he begins to set his eyes on other um, recipients, I guess. Is the best way I can think of to put that? I don't sure. know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, he begins looking other at... Other non-consenting females? Yeah. Well, maybe, but possibly not. He begins to flirt with Jane Seymour, and there's a lot of evidence, actually, that she and her family were basically taking a page out of the Boleyn family's book and finding a way to get Henry to set Anne aside so that he could marry Jane, Mm -hmm. uh, which is exactly what Anne did with Kathy. So I'm never going to refer to Catherine of Aragon uh, uh, <laughs> appropriately ever again. She's going to be Kathy for the rest of my yep, life. Yeah, you're welcome. 
So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Jane Seymour and her family are scheming just as hard as Anne Boleyn and her family had to achieve exactly the same thing. Um, Anne is attempting to use her position of power while she can, not only to give the son an heir or the king an heir and son, but also to enact a lot of the religious reforms that she mm-hmm. wanted to see. The problem was that Henry wasn't on board with anything that didn't directly benefit him. So dissolving the monastic orders and absorbing that wealth into the monarchy, that benefits him. Mm-hmm. Uh, giving him supreme control over the church so that he can annul his previous marriage and decide who he wants to be married to, that benefits him. Mm-hmm. But further changes lean too far to the side of full heresy, which is something that's still illegal, mind you, in his realm. And he's still literally burning people at the stake for it. So it doesn't really interest him to enact more changes. That'll become important in a minute. Anne is doing her best to give uh, Henry an heir. She's once again very pregnant and she catches... Jane Seymour looking at this um, pendant and kind of like smiling to herself, I assume. Um, It turns out that Jane Seymour had been given a locket that contained a miniature portrait of Henry VIII. Henry had given it to her and Anne recognized this as a a serious threat, basically. But also, Mm -hmm. because she's such a, like, a fiery personality, she was just genuinely pissed off by it. So she rips it off of Jane's neck so hard that she cuts her own hand around the chain. So she's, like, pissed. Um, The story goes, and the legitimacy of, like, this is um, not 100%, but The story goes that she walked in on Henry and Jane Seymour being rather closer than they should have been by all propriety's standards. And she got so angry that she, like, it caused too much stress and she had another miscarriage. Mm. This was, like, the nail in her coffin, basically, because... When she miscarried, she was far enough along that she had to deliver the fetus, and they could tell that it would have been a boy. So this, not only has she still not provided a living heir, but she, it could be contrived to say that she somehow chose not to provide Henry with an heir. Oh, because stage. men can never take accountability for their own actions and accept the fact that maybe if he hadn't been macking on another girl, his current lady wouldn't have had a fucking miscarriage. Or even if they couldn't just understand that this was not something that necessarily anyone had no. any control over. Like, True. Sometimes was, miscarriages was just was fucking stress, happen. Absolutely. But if it was the stress, he's the one who caused it. And also, he's the one who can't bring strong virility. Right, that's true. To a male fetus. So it was his none fault of them in the first survived, place. Obviously. No, absolutely. Miscarriages <sighs> can happen for any number of reasons, or or no reason at all. So, yes, yeah, it is not her fault, no matter what. But like, damn, right. dude, maybe right. if you you know didn't have so much karma for being such garbage in the first place. 
Also, maybe here's a concept. What if instead of the woman going into seclusion um, and bed rest, the uh, dude had to do it. So then she didn't experience any of the stress and plus. she could have like lived her life. Ugh, an idea. <laughs> um, Unless so, the seclusion is like living in like a cute cottage with all your best gal friends. Like all your it's best. It's not like, that. All your besties. I know. But like, could you imagine? Like, I would take that seclusion. I would, I would take that seclusion. That seclusion. <laughs> but the seclusion in the Tudor era was a not room no. with the shutters put yeah. up so there's no light there's like incense burning everywhere so it's just like Ugh. cloying and just like uh and yeah. you don't yeah. get to leave bed ever no. so zero out of ten sounds like a shitty experience another reason to not get <laughs> pregnant mm-hmm. at least not in the 1530s <laughs> or ever but yeah or ever yeah but especially not during this <laughs> okay God, I feel like I have so much left to cover and I want to, like, get done this done. Um, So Anne miscarries again. At this point, it's the last straw for Henry. He's like, get this bitch out of here. The key part of this is that Anne, by and large, was in the dark as to the political machinations that were happening behind the scenes that would lead to her downfall. She was kind of a firebrand. And um, I think that, like... A lot of shows have done a good job of representing that. But she also, like, that led to her not, like, necessarily thinking about the consequences of how she interacted with other people. Mm-hmm. So she, like, at one point said to a man uh, in the court, like, she's basically commenting on, like, their flirty interaction. Flirting insofar as it was innocent was fine if you made any intimation of the fact that it was something more that was a problem and she made the joke that like she's a married woman unless of course something were to happen to the king and it is literally treason to imagine or speak out loud any concept of the monarch's death at this point so that's like a big problem that she said that even though it was a passing comment she just didn't think that through um or she did and didn't care (laughs) maybe also um she like, yeah i really... mean it's like it's like like nowadays when people are like i'm gonna die but like we don't actually want to die you just like say a thing and then people are like oh my god don't ever say that right but i think like all of the tutor court was like oh my god don't ever say that right. um and they didn't really understand sarcasm <laughs> right apparently so she isn't aware that not only is her own uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, and um, Thomas Cromwell, who had previously been her ally in pushing forward religious reformation, were working behind the scenes to oust her. They played on Henry's frustration, though, and Henry ultimately takes responsibility for the fact that ousting her didn't mean sending her to a nunnery like they had with Kathy, where she would spend the rest of her days in seclusion. It meant she was going to be accused of treason and taken to trial where she wouldn't have a chance in hell of being found not guilty. Mm -hmm. They 
this was a thing I learned from blood, sex and royalty actually was I've always learned that, and I'm not going to go into the details of the trial because it's all a sham. It was all politically engineered to make Anne look really, really bad so that Henry could do away with her without Mm -hmm. paying any negative consequences to his reputation. Mm -hmm. So all of that is ultimately like, you know how that plays out. What I didn't know until I watched the show was that um, Henry had actually sent for the executioner before Anne's trial. He was that set on being done with her in a very permanent way. Wow. He sent for the executioner, and as the story goes, obviously, she was spared the axe and executed with a sword. Another thing that I learned from Blood, Sex, and Royalty was that she was offered an opportunity at clemency. She was offered the option. All she had to do was agree that their marriage had never been valid and that it would be, therefore, annulled. Mm-hmm. And she would get to go to a nunnery, just like Kathy had. She signs that agreement, but it was a lie it like i don't know at what point it like if it was a hopeful document that a friend of hers had like put together or if henry had actually extended that offer and then just changed his mind which also wouldn't surprise me right but at any rate that agreement was not honored and Anne was executed she's executed by beheading on the um, 19th of May in 1536. So she was only married to Henry for three years, even though their relationship overall was about 10 years. Um, She's only Queen of England for three years, which I feel like a lot of people don't realize. Mm. Like, I feel like because of the length of their quote-unquote courtship, a lot of people think that she was in power for much longer than that. She wasn't. Henry got what he wanted out of her in the bedroom and didn't get what he wanted insofar as a son and heir, and he tired of her very quickly. So he got rid of her. No holds barred. Um, she's buried in this church, the, Saint, the Church of St. Peter uh, at Vincula, which is on the grounds of the Tower of London. I've been there. She is believed to be buried under um, a stone in the altar, like under the altar. Mm-hmm. So that's like kind of where her like commemoration is. And there's mm-hmm. also um, this wonderful modern monument to the spot where a lot of people were put to death by Henry VIII, including Anne. It's not 100% sure that that's where it happened, but um, it's their, like historians' best guesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be noted um, that... Let's see if I can find this really fast. Um, Henry... <laughs> Henry... God, he's such a fuckhead. He was betrothed to Jane Seymour on May 20th, 1536, the day after Anne died. Right. The day after, it should be noted, he literally 
murdered her. Murdered his wife in order to marry her. Yeah. Yeah. And they, yeah, yeah, they were married 10 days later. Right. So he's really a man in mourning for sure. Um, No way to get over your ex, like getting on top of another one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, there has, and like so many shows that I love are guilty of this. Tudors being one of them of like romanticizing the relationship between Henry and Anne. Mm. But I wanted to make this explicitly clear now that we've gotten here. He is her murderer. Right. So like, uh, recognizing that they may have had a romantic relationship in the beginning, like, don't romanticize that, even though that's real. Like, don't be like, oh my god, they were like long, well, like, starstruck But it also lovers. just feels like, like it also just feels more like the chase. He chased her for so long that he probably did think that he loved her. He wanted it so bad and she wouldn't give it to him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, Oh my god, this is so much more intriguing. This is like fascinating. I right. like it like the the air of mystery about it. And then he finally had her and was like That was Well, you're boring. not giving me what I want, so this is lame. Like right. it doesn't even feel to me like there was ever like romance or anything. It just felt like no. a dude chasing a girl. She finally said yes, and he was like, Ah, you Okay, I got enough from you. Thanks, bye. Well, even... Like, I got some of what I wanted, but you're not giving me everything that I wanted. So I'm going to set you aside for someone that might give me everything I want. Yep, that's enough. Okay, bye. Yep. Yeah. Um, It's just... It's so gross. Now I want to finish off with my perhaps uh, spurious an outlandish claim that without Anne Boleyn, the United States would not exist the way it does today. Um, And here's why. She pushed the religious reforms, right? The break with Rome and the Church of England. And she wanted more, but because of Henry, no additional reforms really happened. In fact, it sparked conflict ongoing within England between Protestants and Catholics for many years to come. And a big reason why English people went to the quote-unquote new world was A, to escape religious persecution from the ruler in charge. Elizabeth II was a Protestant, so Catholics fled. But then there were also Protestants who fled who were unhappy with the lack of change, who saw the change of the monarch to the he- like the head of the Church of England as purely ceremonial. But uh, one big thing, for example, that they had huge issues with was the decadence of faith, um, the ornate nature of the churches. You, you can see this literally today if you walk into a Catholic church versus walking into a Lutheran church. Catholic churches have a lot of ornate decor. They have like a, you know, a lot of finery. Lutheran churches are pretty straightforward. It is a building. It's very simple. There might be some like pretty windows, but other than that, you're not getting anything fancy. Right. There are a lot of reformers who were unhappy with the lack of reformation 
like they were like okay so you broke with rome but what else have you done you've done nothing so they fled to the um what would become the u.s to practice what they wanted for faith which was something that was simpler which was something that was less ornate less um ostentatious ostentatious things like that and without those things becoming pivotal to um the uh, exodus of people from europe to the americas the united states wouldn't exist the way it does say we probably wouldn't speak english like um yeah, yeah so like big picture here this is this is why i love anne boleyn not only is she a badass but she completely changed the trajectory of european history mm-hmm. um and in such a short time right. so anyway that's me getting real uh-huh. excited about anne boleyn for a long time thank you for sticking through that love that amazing i'm glad you got to talk about something you're passionate about i i love this story so much i mean it's a tragedy all things considered mm-hmm. um like standing at um the the altar of the church where she is possibly buried like i can't even begin to describe the emotions that i felt like as a as a baby witch like Anne Boleyn is one of the people that I feel very drawn to in a spiritual sense um and I can't even yeah I can't even put into words just like this like overarching sense of like betrayal and sadness Mm -hmm. just like very visceral um in the tower grounds for sure also fun fact in the tower of london you can view one of henry the eighth's last suits of armor that was crafted for him and it has a a very prominent codpiece um if you know what a codpiece is do you know what a codpiece is explain it for the people it is the piece of metal that protects his junk makes sense and this armor is mostly for show because at this point later on in his life he was obese he actually he suffered a serious injury um in january of 1536 that may have played into the turn of events in Anne's story he was injured in a jousting accident and by some accounts he was unconscious for two hours and may have injured his like frontal cortex which is um an injury that's also caused a lot of serial killers. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, and by any accounts, Henry VIII is basically a serial killer. He just did it legally, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Uh, well, it's easy to do it legally when you make the law. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Sorry. Okay. Anyway, um, so he... Like, he had been known as a very magnanimous king, and after this injury, he became very temperamental, very unwilling to compromise on anything. He also got an injury in his thigh that refused to heal and became ulcerous, Mm. um, and that would plague him for the rest of his life. So, I mean, it can't have been fun, but, like, doesn't excuse you executing your wife, um, (laughs) to be clear. Um... 
but like for the rest of his life like he was a very active man before he couldn't do any of that he couldn't joust he couldn't play um sports um he couldn't go riding none of those things which are all things that he was rumored to have loved and um so he's very obese at the end of his life so this suit of armor that you can see in the tower of london not something he would have worn for anything other than show and it has the biggest teen cover you've ever seen well um, basically a medieval jockstrap find, find me a guy who's going to actually get a jockstrap or a peen cover <laughs> that's the accurate size find right. me one right <laughs> uh but it is a very clear political statement if you watch, uh, if you ever watch The Secrets of Great British Castles with my favorite historian, Dan Jones, he does an episode on the Tower of London and he talks about the. Um, the peen cover? The peen cover at length, if you right. will. Right. If you will. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Time for special things. Yes. I've had enough of penises today. Kaylin is ready to go to bed. <laughs> I, I really am. Um, okay. Well, first, before special things, next week's hint slash assignment is 1610s india oh or you can do 1600s if that's too narrow of a gap sure um special thanks are gonna go to all of the harrys who have published cocktail books because apparently there's a lot of them (laughs) um Mm -hmm. Thanks to the French, but not for their numerical system, because it's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get attacked. We have no listeners in France, and I'm sure it's because of how much shit we've talked. And I I do want to say I've never been to France. I don't know anything about the French, so I'm sorry if you hate me. (laughs) It's nothing personal. But at least I know how to count to 79. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm not helping. <laughs> um, I started it. So thanks to Anne Boleyn, the fucking queen, literally, probably changing the world as we know it. Um, and thanks to Kathy. <laughs> she did her oh, part, and, and it does suck that she got swept aside, but. You know, kings, I guess. <sighs> fucking kings. And fucking kings. It comes with consequences. Yeah, literally all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what I've got. Do you have any special thanks? Just thanks to Anne Boleyn again. My literal obsession. I love her. <laughs> um, thanks to all the historians now who are dissecting all of the things that have been said about Anne throughout history and trying to figure out what the truth was. Another book you can read is Anne Boleyn, 500 Years of Lies, if you want more of this content. Excellent. Which will be on our bookshop.org. Yeah, that's all I got. Great. Thank you. Um, Happy holidays. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, Happy Yule winter solstice etc that's all i got cheers nerds <laughs> okay bye alcohol and anecdotes is hosted produced and edited by caitlin hedberg and mari harlow our intro and outro music is courtesy of vanity plate of minot north dakota 
You can visit alcoholandanecdotes.com to find episode content and merch. You can also email us at alcoholandanecdotes at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram or Facebook at alcoholandanecdotes. You can listen to us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow, rate, or review our podcast or subscribe to us on Patreon for additional support and to help keep alcohol and anecdotes going. While we joke about alcohol use and mental health issues as a part of our day-to-day, we know that both can be no laughing matter. If you're struggling with substance abuse or a mental health disorder, please call the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP for information on local treatment options, support groups, and community-based organizations. Once again, that's 1-800-662-HELP. Thanks for listening. Cheers, nerds. Bert tasted like my dinner, which was tortelloni. Got it? Spaghetti sauce.